Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1091.PS6503, certificate number 36841. The Rural Purge. Welcome to Hee Haw, starring Buck Owens and Roy Clark. You have a TV network, an American television network that's like kind of deep in your childhood blood, the primordial soup of John Roderick. Like what's, what is the TV, American TV channel to you? Interesting. I always felt like an NBC guy, but in the 70s, I was a CBS guy. I don't think I ever was an ABC person. There was, I was wondering if you would be, there was a brief window when thanks to Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and... Uh, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley. Oh, Three's Mor- Company. Three's, Three's Company, Company, Mork like, and Mindy. ABC had this big sitcom oh, block, right. and they were in the late 70s, they were the, suddenly the dominant network in America. And I was wondering if being a... Because I'm an NBC kid. I came yeah. up on the, the Huxtable era of family, Brandon Tartikoff family sitcoms. I, I absolutely watched all those sitcoms, and that was our block, but like... Um, I wonder if NBC just having the peacock and the bung, 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 if kids tend to remember. Well, ABC employed the theme song, or I'm sorry, the jingle for ABC in the mid-70s was Still the One, which was a song by uh, the band Orleans. We're still the one. It's that we're still having fun and we're We're still still having fun. And it was such a catchy tune and ABC played it. All the time. It was like, it felt like maybe for just that summer, but it, it connected with me in that way that only great pop music can do when it's excerpted into a 30 second promo jingle. And I think at least at that point in in that part of my life, I wouldn't have even, I wouldn't even been able to tell you a different uh, television station than ABC because I was, I so fixated on that tune. But then the NBC Peacock, I mean, they all were they all were pretty good at getting kids to try right. and identify with Right, because Saturday mornings, you see, that's when you see all the promos if you're a kid. A catchy jingle goes a long way, like the, um, that, Motown song, uh, that Motown song, Get Ready, Cause Here I Come. Yeah. Like, I only, like I only associate with that as a kid and hearing the new 
lyrics, get ready for Como Kids Fair, which was some kind of, which was some kind of summer kids event run by the local ABC affiliate here. So this must have been, yeah, you're the one that uh, we're still having fun and we're still the one must have been that brief era when ABC was the number one. Yeah, mid-70s, right? 77 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, late 70s, I think. And we would have watched all the programs that you uh, that you describe. And then it started to transition into more mature fare, of course, like The Love Boat and uh, Fantasy Island, where... That was where, all ABC stuff too, right? Yeah, people were... It was implied that people were having sex. No one in the, no one in the Happy Days uh, Laverne and Shirley universe... I guess Fonzie, it was suggested that Fonzie... F's. had had uh, had some sex with people but no one else did with, with leather tuscadero yeah uh yeah but on the love boat you know jamie farr would slink back to his cabin with uh who it was the, not uh, stephanie powers she's out of his league who's some <laughs> who would jamie farr uh maybe cindy sherman <laughs> there we go <laughs> you know this is not a thing that exists anymore if people identifying with a network isn't that funny i mean i guess in the 90s it would have in the 80s it was nbc and then you know, when the media landscape started to fragment, I guess you were more of a, you know, you're an ESPN guy in oh, college. Oh, no, you remember when a... Fox first showed up on the right. scene? Right, okay, so yeah, there is a Fox type, because right. they were the edgy programming, and all the college kids were watching Simpsons and X-Files. And uh, Married with Children. Exactly. Yeah. This kind of stuff you wouldn't see on the three old traditional networks. But it, but they really did, like so many things, like Ford and Chevy, uh when uh, or like various record labels, RSO versus uh, Universal or something, you know, they, a big part of of the scarcity of media at the time was was associating it like with a football team, sort of um, part of their part yeah. of the way they sold their content, I guess. Which we did it's not what we would have said then. We said programming was we didn't know, know we didn't know yet that it, we had invented content. <laughs> Like you, oh, that was true. I guess uh, with the radio stations in my town, you would you would describe yourself as someone who either listened right. to one hundred two point five or listened to one hundred seven point seven. And the no, marketing oh. angle is the same. Don't touch that dial. Right. right. This is where you leave it in your car, and when you're at home, you come home from work and you just leave it on where you know NBC or ABC or wherever your feel good sitcoms are going to be. Because they don't want you switching around and being like, well, I, I switch over to Dallas, but then I come back to NBC for Carson, like. They really want you to stick it out. When I was a drinking man, there was a, you know, the, the bar that I drank at. The bar uh, at which you drank. The, the, the bar at drank which When I, I was a prepositioning <laughs> ending a sentence with, man. Uh, um, uh, they had a happy hour that was from, I think, you know, 8 to 10 or something like that. And a new bar opened down the block. Linda's was the new bar. The Comet is where I drank. Linda's uh, opened and put their happy hour one hour. I thought you were going to say one minute. <laughs> no, it, their happy hour started one hour later, I think. So maybe uh, the comment was seven to eight, seven to nine, and, the, and Linda's was eight to ten. So you'd start at the comment, but then you'd go to Linda's for that extra hour of happy hour. But, of course, that's where you'd stay the rest right. of the night. It's smart. I was thinking you'd put it. 10 minutes earlier, but really right. later is what keeps people there. And I think she may have tried it the other way and then realized, oh, everybody leaves here to go to the Comet. So she flipped it around. Savvy. Uh, you know, of course, once the media landscape fragmented, uh, there were more options. And, you know, it really could reflect your personality more. Because honestly, the programming on NBC and ABC and CBS were not that different. What but were the sitcoms that went up against Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley? Well, in the in the late seventies, NBC 
was just unwatched. NBC was a disaster. Right, I remember before that. The, it was... Before the Cosby show kind of remodeled its as sitcom brand. And so what did they have but C- on? But CBS had had kind of the classier, socially relevant stuff. That's where you would watch MASH or Archie Bunker. Okay. The Jeffersons. And I think that's why I associated myself as a CBS kid because of it's MASH. It's classy. Yeah. It's kind of forgotten now, now that we think of, if we remember these three networks as monoliths at all, we kind of think of them as kind of interchangeable, you know, three cars constantly jockeying for the lead. In fact, that is not true. CBS was the top-rated television network in America from 1955 to 1976 without interruption. Wow. Everybody else was also- Oh, because also that ran. had Walter Cronkite too. They had Walter Cronkite. They were the, uh, you know, they were the Tiffany network. They were the, the kind of the gold standard of classy, respectable American family television. And they were just an unstoppable ratings juggernaut. In 1962, 19 of the top 25 shows on the air in terms of Nielsen ratings, were CBS shows. Now, The Tonight Show was NBC. Yes. Which was always in that time slot the top-rated show, wasn't it? Didn't The Carson Show kind of have a, have a lock, at least on that nighttime? Yes. So there were other day parts, which I think is what they say in the TV world, where you know somebody else could be dominant. Somebody's soaps could be better than somebody else's soaps. Maybe right. somebody's game shows were better. Carson was dominant. Obviously, you can't counter-program Saturday Night Live. Um, but in primetime, CBS ruled. Which was when the most number of eyeballs were focused on the sh- Yeah, by an, by an order of magnitude. This is when people are home watching TV, and this is when advertisers want to put the new cars and beers in front of dad. Right. Uh, and so that's the lucrative time for a TV network. And uh, CBS did this on the strength of a wide variety of programs, um, you know, going all the way back to I Love Lucy, but then popular Westerns like Gunsmoke. And by the late 60s, they were still dominant. In 1967, 1968, CBS had 13 of the top 18 rated primetime wow. shows. And in 1968, <clears throat> the entire top five is a CBS lineup. The The biggest shows in America are Andy Griffith, uh, Lucille Ball's new show, Gomer Pyle, Gunsmoke, Family Affair. Boy, that really gives you a strange picture of the late 60s that you, you, being Generation X, we never quite see into what what year was that like you're talking about 68 69 68 so you would think this is going to be countercultural laughing <laughs> and smothers brothers <clears throat> and it's seriously five shows where people are like yuck yuck it's andy griffith lucille ball it's gunsmoke it's stuff that could have been on 10 years before or 20 years hee-haw. before and it is hee-haw. hee-haw was a cbs show and uh cbs started to get this reputation for having these weirdly kind of backwoods shows led by Andy Griffith and Jim Neighbors. Right. And uh, and they were disparagingly called the country broadcasting system. Wow. Um, and this is not something that, the funny thing is, this is just not a, a continuation of, of rural American culture. This had to be created. In 1957, there were a lot of Westerns on TV. Right. Which you could say is kind of a rural frontier. My, my dad loved watching vibe. Westerns. My mom would say, you know, dad would come home and before I was born turn on the TV and watch Gunsmoke or whatever Western was on. Loved them. In old movies, they always watch Westerns because you can immediately tell, you know, you'll just hear bang, 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 an Indian war Yeah, yeah. You know, wah, 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 wah. and, you know, the, the subtext is clear. We don't have to license any dialogue, but this guy is watching primetime TV, right. which is probably a Western. The 
but the the dawn of rural TV actually started in 1957 on ABC hmm. when they badly needed a hit, and these two Broadway writer producers, Norman Irving Pincus, uh-huh. told them they had a oh, sure, brothers. The brothers had a surefire success. The Pincus brothers said, uh, "We need. We got this idea. Walter Brennan in a show called The Real McCoys." about kind of a West Virginia hillbilly family that comes west to California. They inherit a ranch in uh, San Fernando Valley, and they move out to the valley and make pornography. Did up from no, the they, ground. No, they don't do that. They, <laughs> Did up from the ground come bubbling crude? I mean... This is before the Beverly Hillbillies uh, by five years. Uh, and So the Beverly Hillbillies are kind of ripping off they this They rip off concept? of the real McCoys. Oh, yeah. So for six years on, the real McC- on ABC, the real McCoys were a huge hit. And it's the it's the same Beverly Hillbillies kind of fish out of water thing. You got Grandpappy Amos played by Walter Brennan, mm-hmm. you know, the cowboy sidekick from the 40s. Uh, has like three Best Supporting Actor Oscars, I think. Very good opposite Humphrey Bogart into Have and Have Not. But he's kind of this Grandpappy who's out of step in the modern world. But typically his conservative worldview is proved to be correct. Of course. Even in the San Fernando Valley of, of 1959. Uh, and you know, there's a little bit of minstrelsy to it. I mean, this was not for rural people to finally see themselves. This was really for everybody in America to kind of laugh at these bumpkins. Right. The bumpkins that have a heart of gold. And that's, oh, absolutely. that's true for most of this stuff, right? The, I, I mean, thought you were going to say it was true for most bumpkins. Most bumpkins have a heart of gold. But no, Gomer Pyle is never wrong, right? He, at, by the end of the episode, his right. like simple, his simplicity turns out to be the only thing that we can count on. The trappings are funny. You know, having a rock granny in a rocking chair on the back of a truck is funny. Right. And it's funny that they don't know how to use a a telephone or whatever. But no, obviously their homespun ideals always went out in the end against the crooked uh, developer or the snooty PTA lady or the... Contemptibly articulate uh, man with a pencil mustache. Right. There's there's an anti-bigotry episode of The Real McCoys, but it's bigotry against hillbillies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the local kids are calling the, the hillbilly kids slur. Um, so the other networks take notes of this huge hit. And in 1960, CBS rolls out its kind of appeal to that audience, The Andy Griffith Show. Mm-hmm. Andy Griffith uh, plays kind of a, a widowed sheriff in a impossibly bucolic, small American town of Mayberry. Andy Griffith, though, is smart. Like, he's not portrayed as a, as a dumb hillbilly. He's like a... No, he's folksy. Folksy, right. And, and I guess Barney Five, Don Knotts is dumb. The town is full of... The he, town has some clowns. Yeah. But, uh, but yes, in general, he's another kind of simple but wise salt-of-the-earth type. And that's not a fish-out-of-water show. You know, Mayberry is all about building the world of this you know, the kind of lost nostalgic America. But don't they have like city folks that come through and they're, and blow a tire or, I mean, they, they, I think folks come into Mayberry that don't belong there. I think so. And as, as you said, some of the later shows have the fish out of water conceit very prominently, Beverly Hillbillies. And then of course, Green Acres, which has kind of a rich Park Avenue guy feeling the lure of, of the soil and moving his spoiled socialite wife right. to Hooterville. Um, but here's my question. This is like, 1960, you know, America's changing. This is no longer the the state Eisenhower era. This is young, vibrant Jack Kennedy's America. This is the new frontier. What, in your opinion, is the appeal of these throwback hayseed shows? Well, isn't it always that uh, that we pine for the simpler times of 20 years ago when we didn't have all these darned cell phones and whatnot? I mean, it seems like an eternal, 
if you if you read back like uh the diaries of Samuel Pepys is, he's is he like the 1530s yeah, were the best he's or? always talking about to you know how 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 relaxed it was before the court got all got all up in its bunches I think there's something to that because the early 60s would have been kind of the, the the dawn of the man in the gray flannel suit where you know America the you know the average American man is now kind of a stressed harried office type right well and and who I mean, misses a who misses a, a simpler time when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. After World War II, there was such a transformation of, uh, of rural America. This was when all of a sudden you had electricity and telephones and sewers going into all these places that up until throughout the war, I guess, people in, in a lot of rural communities were, were still on, they weren't on a grid of any kind. So that electrification, the suburbanization, the urbanization, it all was happening in, in this 10-year period. And it must have been incredibly destabilizing for people who weren't already living on Madison Avenue. It's tempting to think this is the time period when Americans moved to the cities. And of course, that's not true. Um, you know, there was, America, you know, when America was founded, 5% of the country was city dwellers. And today it's over 80%. Um, but that inflection point where it passed 50% was around World War I. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Before 1920, half of all Americans were living in a city. And, you know, if you look at early TV, it is kind of a sparkling, urbane atmosphere. You know, right. the, 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 it's erudite panel shows. It's, uh, you know, the biggest sitcom hit is I Love Lucy, this woman with a Cuban band leader husband and a nice New York penthouse who keeps meeting celebrities. Yeah. Um, but even the honeymooners were blue-collar cities. Exactly. They're blue-collar, but they're probably Brooklyn or the Bronx. Um, yeah, and all the, all the like, uh, the romantic comedies of that era too. They're all in, in, uh, in, in penthouse apartments, right? They all, right. It's beautiful art deco apartments. Yeah. If you ever see someone out in a field, it's, it's, uh, it's just that their car broke down. So the subtext of TV really is these are educated people. These are urbanites and the sixties boom in petticoat junction type shows. I don't know if it's something in the zeitgeist or, or if it's just, you know, <clears throat> chasing one hit. The real McCoy's was a hit. So let's do six, uh, six ripoffs. Well, but think about Gilligan's Island. Um, which, I would prefer not to. No, I want you to. I want you to think about it. Uh, I want you to start with me at the very beginning. Now I can't. A three-hour tour. Yes, that's right. How, why do they have all those changes of clothes <sighs> the then? The skipper 
and Marianne, the millionaire and the professor. You've never actually heard this song. <laughs> uh, if this was still the one, you the would know every Gilligan word. Gilligan and the rest. But but Gilligan's Island and Green Acres came out about the same time. I think Gilligan's Island preceded it a little bit. <clears throat> Both had this millionaire and his wife who were who were put in this situation. I mean, Gilligan's Island is the ultimate how do we recapture our our essence in a in a world gone mad? It's a fertile comic ground to take people and, you know, to do the crocodile dundee thing and put somebody in a weird environment. Right. You know, to this day that that, that the first Thor movie is entirely powered by what if Thor tried to use an escalator? Is it going to be funny if he tries to order in a diner? I mean, well, Munsters and Adam's family, same exact conceit, except in a different direction. Like they're right, they're they're hillbillies, but like from the hills of Transylvania, and they don't recognize that they're the weird ones. Right, that's true. They think you know they think the neighbors are weird. That's and that's the whole joke. Um, so you're you're absolutely right to to look at all of this programming as kind of of a, of a piece. And is it is it a return or is it a it isn't just fish out of water comedy. There's something really nostalgic about it for people of the time. They're yeah. not it's not just like, hey, we've got we've got because Dick Van Dyke is a is a great example of a sixties com or a sixties sitcom that is still erudite people in a cool he's, apartment. He's a showbiz cool insider. House. He yeah. writes for a comedy show. It could, you know, it could not be more insider meta. They're like mid-century modern. Goes out cool to his house. nice suburban mid-century modern house. Yeah. Mary Tyler Moore in Capri pants. So it wasn't universal, but but wow, what a preponderance of these shows. And it just suddenly starts in 1960, the time when you would think the rural influence on American culture would be ending. Right. Instead, it it takes over the airwaves. And CBS is still the number one show in America in 1970 when a, a Number young, one network. Sorry, number one network in America, yes, when a young executive named Fred Silverman takes over- I've heard of him. Programming. And Fred Silverman decides, we are tired of being laughingstocks. We are not the country broadcasting system. Even though they're the top rated. Even though these shows are still- Okay, there have been some decline. Green, Green Acres ratings are down. Beverly Hillbillies ratings are down. These shows are past their prime. Jim Neighbors wants to leave Gomer Pyle to do the singing or whatever else he does. <laughs> uh, B. Benadurette wants to leave Petticoat Junction. You may remember her as the voice of uh, Granny in, uh, in Looney Tunes cartoons. Yeah. She was also the, the lead on Green Acres. So some, so some of the shows are kind of winding down. But Fred Silverman, in the space of one or two years, institutes what's called the Rural purge. Uh, well, I mean, not it's not called that at the time. Right. But in hindsight, when we can see the network reshaping itself, you can see that he cancels anything old-timey on the network in the space of two seasons. So we think of Fred Silverman, at least I do, as somebody from the 80s. Right. He's who's the, is like he a, the ABC guy? Yeah, who's 80s? like an older dude by then. But in, in 1960 or 1970, he's like, Young Turk. He's yeah. like 30, right? Yeah. And so the old timey sh shows go away. It's all these. It's all these kind of hazy country shows. But it's also, you know, kind of stale seeming variety shows. You know, Red Skelton Hour and other uh, vaudevillian shows. Uh -huh. The westerns. Uh, you know, that was the action paradigm for a generation of kids was cowboys and Indians. But uh, you know, the westerns go away as well. And some of these were still successful shows. CBS, like, CBS is still the number one show. Mayberry RFD, the the kind of the successor to the Andy Griffithless successor to the Andy Griffith show is a top 20 show. Hee Haw, a new Nashville Grand Ole Opry comedy show, is in the top 20. 
Fred doesn't care. It's all got to go. And he cleans house. Well, so now he eliminated Hee Haw, but Hee Haw continued as a viable syndicated show for two decades. Well, these properties were still popular. So for the first time you had, you know, extremely popular shows that were homeless, first run syndication was kind of invented here. I mean, there had been kind of oddball hits in first run syndication, you know, game shows and the like. But this was the first time that shows that had big primetime audience could say, you know, could approach local affiliates directly and say, hey, if we can get 100 of you to buy our show, we can stay a going concern. So Lassie is canceled, uh, but Lassie goes into syndication for a couple of years. Lawrence Welk is canceled because <laughs> what could be older than a, you know, kind of a, what a German guy from the Midwest <laughs> conducting polkas. But he, he continued until he continued. 2016. <laughs> yeah, he's still alive. No, Lawrence Welk goes on for 11 seasons. I used to, I used to love Lawrence Welk as a, as a, like a kid when I was three or four years old. Not a surprise as much as you might think. Can you, can you see that a little bit? <laughs> a little bit. And a one and a two. He has the big success story. After it's canceled after a mere couple seasons on CBS, it runs for 20 years in syndication. Does not go off the year until 1992. Wow. Like Bill Clinton is running for president when Hee Haw is canceled. And I guess they were like, we did it. I watched Hee Haw and I don't know how. I'm not exactly sure you what you how? Well, no, because my mom is from, my mom is from Northern Ohio and there, I don't think is any worse prejudice in America than the people of, than, than what the people of Northern Ohio feel for the people of Southern Ohio. She needs to watch that anti-bigotry episode of The Real McCoy. <laughs> she does. Think, to stop using offensive words like yokel. She does. She feels like, she feels like the West Virginia and Kentucky are, uh, are some kind of like foreign, foreign land. And so she was really against, uh, like, the music of John Denver, for instance, like any, <laughs> any kind of American fetization. How, how would you say it? Fetitization? Fet, making it fetid? Fetishization. Fetishization. Right? Like creating a fetish out of right. Any kind of American fetishization of rural country people. Yeah. My mom was like drew a hard line against it in our house. Because in her eyes, they are trash and should not be uh, she romanticized? Wouldn't, she wouldn't use the word trash, but she feels like as a as a northerner, she felt like culture was something that the Dick Van Dyke show was the world she aspired to and was the world that she thought was sort of morally superior. She and doesn't think John Denver has an Ottoman? She does not think that <laughs> that country roads are anything to celebrate. She thinks that city streets are better than country roads. She just she was extremely suspicious of that world because I think growing up in a post Civil War Ohio, like her grandfather fought in the Civil War for the Union. So they were still pretty stark dividing lines. Stark dividing line because Ohio was the one place in the country where it was the the Union was only one state deep. Really, mm -hmm. you know that was the choke point. And, and the area around Cincinnati, she still felt like a little I mean, suspect, certainly Southeastern Ohio, she considered was part of West Virginia and wouldn't, wouldn't go down there. I mean, if you've been to Southern Ohio, it is part of <laughs> Kentucky and West Virginia. Yeah. I mean, culturally it is, if you're not going to, you should not expect a Rust Belt vibe. But what I'm wondering is how the hell I ever saw Hee Haw, because if, if she'd come in the room and, or if she'd heard it from the kitchen, she would have been like, turn off that hillbilly music. Were you sneaking to friends' houses <laughs> to watch Hee Haw? Maybe, or maybe it was a thing after, after I moved up to Alaska in the seventies to live with my dad, maybe he didn't monitor my Hee Haw consumption. Well, it was on at weird times because it was. Right. 
syndicated. Right, right. So, you know, in the middle of the afternoon or, you know, nine o'clock at night, suddenly Hee might be on some weird, you know, channel 14. And it play. I watched a ton of Hee because it plays really well with young boys. There's all these like corny comedy eggs, like literally yeah. corny in a cornfield. Yeah, right. And there's also all these kind of winsome Southern beauties with their shirts tied under their, their chests and, you know, skimpy overalls. There's a lot of people slipping on banana peels. I mean, when I That's when, very broad. When I played uh, the Grand Old Opry, which uh, Whoa. The, the Long Winters. Oh, I'm sorry, not did, Grand Old Opry. Did I drop this? <laughs> when uh, when the Long Winters played the Ryman Auditorium mm-hmm. in Nashville, there's a bronze statue of Minnie Pearl right. in the lobby of the <laughs> of the Ryman. And we walked in and I I stopped with her and and like Howdy. I said, "Why Minnie Pearl?" That was so. That was a lot of the appeal of Hee Haw to me. Is it opened up this whole other world that had its own set of celebrities? Yeah, like you know, Minnie Pearl apparently is some kind of country singer, but Roy Clark, her and main, Buck Owens. I mean, Buck Owens, a, you know, a genuine talent of of Bakersfield country right. changed the face of music. But I didn't know that at the time. I just thought of them as kind of vaudevillians. But all these kind of odd celebrities, like Minnie Pearl, just has price tags on her hat. Yeah, and she and Grandpa Jones are gonna bicker about that. And there's one guy that he, maybe he's a country singer, but mostly he's just, they're making fat jokes about him. And this lady must be a country singer, but her teeth are blacked out. It was, it was the same reason why I got into wrestling. Like (laughs) there's all these, you got to figure out all these relationships. And this guy used to be a bad guy, but now he's not. Or this guy used to have a a jail gimmick, but now he's, you know, now he's uh, born again or what's going on here? I had this exact, this exact uh, same experience with that show. I remember trying to decode it and being fascinated by it. And, but it, it was, at least when we were consuming it, it was kind of hand in hand with that late seventies, early eighties rural, uh, revival that whether we've talked about before in trucker culture, right. That was the smoky and the bandit and urban cowboy. It's um, true. You can't keep it down. You can try no. to purge the rural. You can take the country out of the, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Yeah. You can take the hick shows off of CBS, but they're just going to migrate over to. To CBS. Uh, to to Reynolds movies. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can take the country out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the country. Heard that. that. That's the way to you say it. You just said it. There's also kind of a racial element here. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the under, you know, the, the subtext of all television for the first 20 years of American TV is this is for middle-class white people. Right. W- you know, watch this. There are very few black people in any of these shows that you've mentioned. <laughs> right. No, there's hardly even. Except you know, Red Fox. There's barely immigrants, you know, there's barely immigrants or, you know, Italian. It would be novel if there was an Italian character. Or, well, you know, the, the Dean Martin show was playing over on <laughs> late night TV somewhere. He's the safe edge of the. He's the knife's edge of uh, Italian immigration. But um, integration was happening on TV, like, it's slowly and in fits and starts, right? Carson was really good about having everybody on his show. And you had uh, you had Bill Cosby. Uh, but it was big news. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were above-the-line names who could do it. Um, but it was big news when Captain Kirk had a black lady answering his phone calls. Like, look how daring this is. We put an Asian and an African-American lady... And a Scott. <laughs> like all three <laughs> kinds of people that there are. <laughs> and even that show had to have a, a good a good old Southern doctor. Oh, well, and you remember the 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 
groundbreaking kiss between Uhuru and Kirk. Right. Was like, I think, what, the first interracial kiss on TV? I think it's often called that, yeah. And of course, they've been mind controlled. They don't want to kiss. Right. So right. that so that's their cover. Oh, but, no. But, you know, when you think about it, but, you know, the this idea that... um this in the sixties as, um, you know, black consciousness and black power is on the rise and civil rights era, all this stuff is on the rise. CBS is going back to these kind of lily white Appalachian right. towns. It's not a good look. Right. And, uh, Fred Silverman is, is hip to this. Right. And if you, you know, he's, he's got kind of a he's liberal sounding name. Guy might've been a freedom writer. <laughs> a liberal sounding name. <laughs> Does it begin with a chemical oh, element? Oh, that's nice. Uh, and if you've listened to Gil Scott Heron's kind of spoken word, the revolution will not be televised piece, he actually name checks CBS rural TV twice huh. as kind of a, something he sees as a, a problem. He says, Green Acres, the Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damned relevant because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. He says, the theme song will not be written by Jimmy Webb or Francis Scott Key, nor sung by... Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash. Glenn Campbell and Johnny Cash were two kind of country types who had these uh, very popular variety shows where they were trying to appeal to a broader audience. Johnny Cash was was trying to appeal to the uh, to the speed addicted uh, <laughs> cross country truck driver. It is funny to watch him back then. You know, you know he's he's uh, he's facing personal demons, but on TV he's just you know he's trying to be your cuddly CBS grandpa. Tom Jones is a, a pretty complex character. I mean, he's Welsh. Yeah, Tom Jones is Welsh. He doesn't fit into that country listing. Right. But, but you know, among the things that, among the names that yeah. Gil is name checking are this kind of country fried vibe Gil of primetime TV. Uh, it should be remembered, was also against the moon landing. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, if you could cancel Beverly Hillbillies, wouldn't you, wouldn't you cancel the moon landing? Like, it's kind of a wash. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. The main reason all this happened, though, was not social or, or, or even socioeconomic. It was straight up economic. Hmm. advertisers were starting to care less about the overall number of people watching a show. Oh, and who was watching the exactly. show. Exactly. This important. is the birth of the coveted, whatever it is, 19 to 35 demographic. Interesting. They, they re, you know, this was the dawn of, you know, the man in the gray flannel suit crunching numbers. And right. they realized, wait a second, we can find out if affluent people are watching this show and therefore buying the, the cars and the dishwashers. I'm sure it was Madison Avenue that invented the concept. It's Madison Avenue all the way. This is a Don Draper era thing. And suddenly it didn't matter if 30 million people are watching Mayberry RFD, if it's not the right people. Right. If it's old people, if it's, 
you know, people from flyover states, they can start to see this data now. Well, it depends. I mean, if you're trying to sell Winston's uh, <laughs> or, or Chesterfield's, that's who you want. But if you want to sell washing machines or, or a brand new Buick, yeah, you want to get, you want to cut the, the fat out. Cut the, cut the uh, corn uh, pone out. Corn yeah, pone? get the corn pone out. Get the out. bacon lard out. Get all of them bacon lards. Out. So Fred Silverman is smelling the future here. He sees which way... It smells like jet fuel. <laughs> he sees which way the wind is blowing. And even though these shows are number one shows now, like his network's going to be left in the dust if they are still kind of chasing this old rural wow. dollar. See, that's that's the kind of bold leadership that media companies... That, you know, they, media companies tend to be chasing fads. It's uh, it's rare when you see a visionary who, even when they're on top, can pivot. Away from old people. Yeah. Because one thing that happened is um, this kind of created for the first time, this cult of youth in American TV. I mean, previously, families watched all these shows together. They were designed for that. But suddenly, you know, Fred Silverman, after canceling all these shows, has all these empty spaces in his program, and he replaces them with these CBS uh, forward-thinking shows for boomers that we were talking about earlier, All in the Family and all its kind of uh, socially aware spinoffs, Mary Tyler Moore, you know, Single Lady in the Big City and all those spinoffs. Right, Rhoda. Um, the variety shows, the you know, the Red Skelton variety shows get replaced with Sonny and Cher or Flip Wilson. So it's a more diverse, counterculture-friendly vibe. But there was some holdover in the form of like the Waltons, but it was much more... It That's interesting. It wasn't as like... Herc Dirk, it was much more. So Fred Silverman is the one who brings the Waltons to CBS after the rural purge. And it does kind of stand out in the schedule. Maybe, you know, maybe he's counter-programming Little House on the Prairie, which is a big hit on NBC. Or it's probably the other way around, actually. I bet Little House came after the Waltons. But you're right. The, the Waltons, the premise well, is there is a... It's a little darker. A, I mean, it's more of a drama. It's, a de it's the depression. Right. Mom has tuberculosis. It's not an idealized rural America. It's like, it's more of a, this was my, you know, Earl Hamner's childhood, you know, the guy who created the show is John Boy. Right. And so it's kind of him remembering from a modern perspective what these times were really like. Right. Super sort of hard scrabble. I mean, I remember the Waltons and Little House on the Prairie kind of being, they, those shows didn't appeal to me as a kid. Uh, they felt a little bit too, there was too much. Gingham. There was a lot of gingham, but it was too dramatic. I didn't want, I, you know. Yeah, I, the dog dies. Yeah. Those it, are shows where the dog might I die. I didn't want the, where the red fern grows. I wanted to, you know, to be on a, on a boat full of love. Uh, uh, and he, and when it comes to action shows, you know, he replaces dad's Westerns with kind of a new grittier set of shows set in cities. You know, oh, you get Kojak yeah. instead of Gunsmoke and you get all these Quinn Martin shows like Cannon. And honestly, it kind of leads to all our modern shows where there's a, a flawed, you know, a doctor house or whatever, kind of an eccentric in the middle of a procedural, you know, solving, solving tonight's crime or tragedy or whatever it is. And that, yeah, so that became a whole genre, the uh, Starsky and Hutch, the, right. the uh, Rockford Files. I mean, they were all... Hardly any police shows before this time, which is weird. Yeah, you had, um, you had the... Police procedurals were much more like detectives. Yeah, it's Perry Mason. Yeah, yeah. But exactly. these are all like cool dudes in leather jackets who are doing undercover 
like uh, vice work in in not just a city, but not a nice part of the city. Right. You know, it's 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 very far from from Dodge City. Or although this would have been a time when the when American anxiety was focused on the unrest, the urban unrest that had, was also kind of a new phenomenon in this decade. Right. Uh, so let's send Kojak in there. <laughs> He'll figure it out. Baby. <laughs> Who loves you, baby? <laughs> so you, you, but you kind of create a separate track of media. You know, you, the old people are, can still watch their, uh, their hee-haw and their wild kingdom on syndicated TV, but, uh, they've effectively been marginalized. This is the moment when American culture passes them by and says, flip through all three channels. None of this stuff is for you anymore. Look, there's like young people and black people. There's rock music. Like, right. like this is not for you. And so maybe this is the beginning of kind of the you know, the creation of a of a ghetto for old people in the media, which eventually gives us the ability to create Limbaugh and Fox News for them because they've been told the real the mainstream programming is not for you. It's really interesting that the old people of Rush Limbaugh, of course, would have been they were the boomers, the, the young well, people of but but it but, might have been their parents. But I think when All in the Family came on. Again, talking to my mom, she she was uh, in computers at the time, and a lot of her coworkers were the pressed white short sleeve shirt and pocket protector types that put a man on the moon. Yeah, but they weren't very progressive. And she said she she carpooled to work because that was the style at the time. And uh, the other three guys in her carpool would uh, sit and recap the previous night's All in the Family episode. Unaware that Archie Bunker was the villain, <laughs> uh, was the cad. That we're like, supposed to be laughing. Oh, at him. they were. They admired him as he told off those hippies and those. And then words you can't say. And she just sat and kept, you know, just like head down. These were guys she worked with. They were her friends. But when they started talking about All in the Family, she couldn't even venture the idea that 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 Archie Bunker was a. Uh, you know, was a sarcastic character or was, you know, we, you were not meant to see him as the hero of the show. That's funny that these are not refrigerator repairmen or whatever, that these are educated, uh, but computer people. So educated. We we see the same thing today where, (laughs) you know, computer people are turned into libertarians the second that their stock options are on the line or whatever. Their progressivism is, is a millimeter thick, but it's easy to see it's, it's, it could conceivably be easy to identify with Archie Bunker, but the spinoffs from that show were Maud, the Jeffersons, good times. Right. I mean, none of those shows are you going to go into? There's no window character there. Maud's getting an abortion. George Jefferson is, is uh, railing against the honkies and the crackers. Although George Jefferson was a, a sort of clownish figure, but, but there weren't any white heroes in that show. Not at all. Uh, and this alienation also potentially leads to kind of an East-West divide in America. Uh, some it's, people had peachy folders and some didn't. <laughs> exactly, the Hardy's Carl Jr. line. It's really interesting if you look at electoral maps from the area following the rural purge. Hmm. Um, the, in the West, you know, today we think of the Pacific states as kind of this reliable, progressive bulwark. But between 1960, when Nevada went for Nixon, or I guess in 1968, Washington went for Humphrey. And in 1988, Washington, Oregon went for Dukakis. Between those two years, there is not a state west of Texas that votes for a Democrat. Whoa. Uh, isn't that weird? Wow. Uh, even like when you look at the Ford Carter election, it's, it's pretty much like a straight line down America. Like everything to the left of the line is red. Everything to the right of the line is blue. 
And I kind of wonder if canceling all the Westerns and and kind of telling the frontier, hey, these or the frontier, as people Front, insist I say. Frontier, I would say, yes. People telling the frontier, hey, the, you know. But you know, your people are from the frontier, so you can call it whatever you want. The dictionary says frontier <laughs> is fine. I'm tired of having this discussion with well-meaning idiots. But, but this is the moment when the West kind of gets fed up with the Eastern elites telling them, you know, not only are we going to, not only are we telling you where your your herds can graze. Right. We're also not going to let you watch Bonanza anymore. Like, you, you don't get to see yourselves on TV. It's now all Eastern elites again. And this is the the era of the rise of Ronald Reagan, probably from that same thing. Exactly. Ronald Reagan gets up on stage and says, I'm part of the Sagebrush Rebellion, you guys. Like, I'm one of you. You know, they, you know the prominent Republicans of this era, Nixon and Reagan, were Californians right. who were, who could plausibly say, we're the future of America, not these old-timey Southern Democrats, you know. Right. Like, like, look to the future with us, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, to, the men of tomorrow. Because these were the beginnings of the, the water wars, the Bureau of Land Management, right. the, I mean, the... I mean, most of it comes down to that stuff and not, not Gunsmoke getting canceled. It's weird that they, would, that they would posit themselves as the modern, vital, and virile future, but also have that connected to this sort of Western cowboy revisionism. It's sleight of hand for sure. Like, you know, they saw how Kennedy got elected and thought, well, we got to do that, even if it doesn't match the platform much. Yeah, sure. Sure. Because yeah, the Southern, the Southern Democrats had really shown their hand throughout the sixties. Civil rights era. Yeah. They, they just, um, they were hard to admire and, and there wasn't yet that urban Democrat coalition. It wasn't, it, it hadn't, it hadn't become an, a, a, um, I was about to say the unstoppable force that it is now, <laughs> but it still seems like a, like it's, it's fairly stoppable. So I don't know. I can't really say that, you know, uh, Petticoat Junction getting canceled led to the Reagan revolution and Fox News, you know, the, the invention of the, the modern kind of uh, ghettoized media uh, blinders. But I'm not not saying it. And it all started because... You know, Fred Silverman uh, did not want to be the network of the past. Pat Buttram, who played Mr. Haney on Green Acres, famously, you know, lost his job from this and famously said uh, the 1971 was the year that CBS killed everything with a tree in it, including Lassie. (laughs) (laughs) The presence of the Southern United States as a cultural force, as as a rebellious force, is something that we see over and over and we try to account for it somehow. But, of course... The South has a population of 120-something million people. Wow. If, if you give them Texas and Florida, right? If you give them Texas and Florida. And so it's a full third of the population of the country. More than a third, yeah. And so the idea of the South, Americans are fixated on it, maybe a, maybe even beyond its it's certainly beyond its geographical and population significance within the country. We think about the South all the time because, because of our, our relationship with it is so troubled. And, you know, the South has Texas and, and Florida, but you could also say that these days it has Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma. Sure. Or, I mean, it always had Oklahoma. It's maybe losing Virginia, North Carolina, but it's creeping up into Iowa. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think, Every time there's a rural purge one place, you get a rural splurge somewhere else. And that concludes The Rural Purge, entry 1091.PS6503, 
certificate number 36841 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. You can see Ken and me fetishizing the South. That's what we always do. On our uh, social media, at Ken Jennings and at John Ryan. I fetishize Southern food and possibly hee-haw supporting players. The, you know, in my family, my mom has this, this deep, deep Northernism, but my father's family are from Kentucky. That's my dad's family as well. Yeah, so... So uh, we grew up eating collard, you know, mess of greens, and, uh, you know, I love, you know, Southern food is very deep in me. Southern food didn't make it all the way to me, uh, and my dad was a was a ardent 50s liberal Democrat, but he was doing that in, in like, angry response to his parents, or to his mother and her family, who were just as Southern as... Then how come it didn't bounce back? How come you didn't rebel against your dad? <laughs> I play the banjo. Like, <laughs> you love NASCAR. Everyone says so. No, it's funny uh, that the migration out here to the Northwest, um, my dad really embraced unions and organized, you know, not just organized labor, but the the organized labor principle of liberal politics out mm-hmm. here. And there was there was no other air in the room when I was growing up. It wasn't it wasn't like you could have a, a different theory. It's also not a great city for soul food. Seattle? Yes. To this no. day, where would you go for Southern cooking in Seattle? It's a I mean, thing. there are places they pop up, right, and say like, Southern cooking over here, and then they all go out of business. But we do definitely, Ken and I like to go to, to barbecue restaurants and take pictures of cornbread, so follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can also go to our Facebook page, uh, which is The Omnibus Futurelings. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com, and you can mail us all of your homespun recipes. Yeah, don't send the cornbread. Don't send the cornbread. Just send don't, your cornbread recipe. Don't send any jars of your grandma's special sauce because we're contractually obligated to throw it away. But anything else, your dad's, your great-granddad's great Civil War medals, you can send to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization will survive. Perhaps a rural-slash-urban purge is coming. We hope and pray that this catastrophe may never come, but if the incident comes soon, whatever it is, the capital I incident, then this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word to you. But if providence allows, we hope to be spared. We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.